for the Heart Ministries. Uh, it was kind of a long week and a little depressing because our, our uh, leader is retiring and he's not going to be the leader anymore and so that's changing the whole structure of the ministry and I don't know how that's going to turn out uh, but I appreciate your prayers for that, for that uh, changeover and, and uh, thank you for those who prayed while we were gone uh, this last week. If you have your Bibles and I pray that you do, uh, would you turn please to Matthew chapter 5 verses 7 through 9. Matthew chapter 5 and verses 7 through 9. Now I've said a number of times already in my prayer and other, other ways that today we're going to be talking about mercy. We're going to be also talking about purity and we're going to be talking about uh, those who are peacemakers. So in thinking about that, in terms of the world that we live in right now, <clears throat> how there's war and all kinds of things going on that we wish weren't going on, and all kinds of impurity, I want to ask these questions and give us a chance to think about what is being said, all right? Because of these, uh, I'm going to say, commands on our life, uh, how, do we, how do we make them work in a real world? So I ask this question and others, is it merciful if I ever promote something like euthanasia? Is it pure if I ever allow my convictions to decrease? Is it peacemaking if I ever go to war? Can the merciful ever not be merciful? Can the pure ever submit to some form of defiling for a good cause? Can the peacemaker May ever trigger conflict on purpose? Those are all questions that we would wrestle with because we are in the midst of a wicked and sinful world, and yet God calls us to do these wonderful things uh, that he's laid out for us in the Beatitudes. How can we, as kingdom people, if we belong to Christ, we are kingdom people. How can we, as kingdom people, members of the family of God, ever hope to live the mandates or the commands of the Beatitudes when we are ourselves imperfect and daily live in a sinful society. How is that possible? How can we always have peace without punishment and mercy without judgment? How can we be pure in these bodies of flesh that are given to, to sin and debauchery? In this sermon, Jesus didn't answer any of these questions that I'm raising for us this morning, at least verbally. He just laid them out for us to do. Jesus said, these things are blessed, and he names these three that we're talking about this morning. These are the objectives that Jesus Christ left for us in this life. So these are the things that we strive to do in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in today. The only time there will not be tension is when we are finally in the eternal kingdom of God, and then it will be possible to be these things perfectly without any contradiction whatsoever. So let's go into our text in verses 7 through 9. We're in the middle of the Beatitudes. That is, that uh, things that we should do so we can be blessed of God. And it says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful. So here's where we get our issue of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Anybody here on Judgment Day want to receive mercy? Yeah, we all put our hands up for that. 
but there's something we need to do. We need to be merciful ourselves. How do you do that in a sinful world? Number eight, or verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart. So this is something that's on the inside, not on the outside. It's not an outward cleanliness. It is an inward cleanliness of the heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do we want to see God? Then we must be pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Do we make peace? Are we striving to make peace with other people and reconcile relationships and those kinds of issues? I want us to look at each one of these individually this morning. So we're going to start in verse 7 all by itself. We're going to be talking about mercy And if you're following along in your bulletin, that first point is mercy from God awaits those who choose to be merciful. Mercy from God awaits those who choose to be merciful. Now, one of the dangers of this is that we can find out that God is love and he's all about love and he wants his children also to be loving. And some people get to the place where they say, that's all God is. He's just love. Well, what about his judgment? What about his righteousness? How does that fit in? So these are all issues. Mercy is one of those issues. I want to talk for just a minute about what the Old Testament says about mercy. In the Old Testament, the word for mercy comes from a word for atonement. Uh, the word is kafar, and that, uh, that has uh, six different words that are spelled the same way but have different meanings. And it means here to deal with sin. The technical term uh, that we use in theology for this is propitiation. In other words, to do away with anger that is brought about by the wrath of our, uh, brought about by our sin and then God's wrath. It means to expiate. It means to atone for or make amends for. It also means to pay for. That's what we think of mostly when we're thinking about God's mercy. To propitiate, then, means to regain the favor of someone. In other words, we angered God by our sin. Everybody is conceived in the womb as a sinner, and then we we choose sin after we're born, and we live that way until we find Christ, and then we get forgiveness for that. But Jesus Christ came along and said, I know my Father is angry with you, and it's because of your sin, And I would like to appease the wrath of my father on your behalf and on my behalf. I would like to take God's anger for your sin away from you. And he accomplished that by coming to earth, dying on the cross, and giving up his life for us so that if we trust in that sacrifice, we can have life eternal. That's propitiation, appeasing the wrath of someone else. It is is telling that God's earthly throne uh, in the Old Testament was called, on that ark, the mercy seat. Twenty-eight times it's used in the Bible. It is from God that we can find mercy for our sins. That is, it is through God that we can find this propitiation and this atonement. What does it mean then to be merciful? I think of the prayer of Habakkuk, where he asked Yahweh at one point, and instead of turning there, I'll just tell you Habakkuk 3.2, and I'm just using half the verse, but uh, but the writer Habakkuk says this, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, that's quite a prayer to God, and that was out of Habakkuk's prayer, and he wants to ask God, while you're being wrathful with our sin, would you please also be merciful? Mercy is when you free someone from a debt that they owe, that they are obligated to pay. Since we're sinners, we are obligated to pay for our sin uh, with God or we're going to be punished with God. Then we find out we can't pay for it. Then we find out there's nothing we can do. We can't be good enough. 
We can't be smart enough. We can't give enough money. We can't take enough communion. We cannot do anything that God is going to accept for payment for our sins. And therefore, we cry out to God too like Habakkuk in wrath, remember mercy, and God has provided that mercy. Mercy is when you free someone from that obligation that they must pay. And that is illustrated very well in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. And I'd like you to uh, go there with me and read that. We're going to go from uh, Matthew 18 down all the way. Um, it's going to help if I'm in the right chapter. Matthew 18, we're going to read down there from verses uh, 21 to 35. We're going to be talking about God's mercy. And here's the parable that Jesus tells about forgiveness. Then Peter came to him in verse 21. Peter came to him and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Uh, Peter throws out a number, up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this is the reason the kingdom of heaven may be for this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children, and that everything that he possessed be sold for repayment and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion or mercy, and released him, and forgave him his debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. That's a hundred days' wages, nothing close to the debt that he owed his master. And he seized him, and he began to choke him. So this is debt collection at its worst form. Uh, got hands around your throat, give me the money. Uh, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began uh, to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. And he went out and threw him in prison until he has paid back everything that he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what happened... They were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Jesus says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each one of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. And what Jesus is saying is if you really belong to me, there's no way that you can't extend mercy for somebody to be forgiven. Those who find it not possible to extend mercy are those who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's like when someone doesn't collect the debt you owe, but instead they pay it for you. That's what Jesus did. Mercy is when you benefit someone with favor, like when Jesus healed people. Uh, Philippians 2.27 is an account of, of that. Uh, let's uh, look at that. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 27. 
Paul was praying to God to heal Epaphroditus, and he says, for indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had, look, there's our word, mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. James chapter 2 and verse 13, well, since we're fairly close to that, let's go ahead and look at that. James 2.13, it says, For judgment will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's basically what we have here in the Beatitudes, although the people in that particular sermon that day would not probably have ever heard the James passage. It was later on. But there we learned that not passing judgment, uh, in other words, being convicted, can end in one of two ways, either punishment or mercy. And there's really nothing left, punishment or mercy in some form. Those who are merciful are those who receive mercy from God at judgment. Everybody wants that. We want God to be merciful to us when we go to judge. So he says you better be careful about are you being merciful to other people around you, people that hurt you, people that don't do uh, nice things to you. Are you merciful? And that's not easy. But we must serve justice at times. The Bible says that and be merciful as we can, possibly, uh, in those situations. Sometimes mercy can soften and convict a heart more than judgment can, but not always. If your motive is mercy, so now I'm trying to tell us, how do we do this in a world like what we live in? If your motive is mercy, in the best of your decisions, you will be shown mercy. God is aware that we live in a sick and fallen world, and perfection is sometimes not possible. But there is coming a kingdom where these will be the reality for our lives all the time, when when we can be the way Jesus wants us to without all these other things getting in the way. But for our part, we are to be merciful as God is merciful. Sometimes we have to judge and there has to be punishment, but we can also interject some mercy in that as well. Next, the Lord Jesus tells them, Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. I've chosen to use that particular verse this afternoon at the nursing home services. I want people to understand that the purity of heart is uh, an indicator of a person who knows Jesus as their Savior because Jesus is the only one that can make a heart pure. So we learn here that the pure have God's favor in that they will one day see him. Do you want to see God? Then we need to be these things that Jesus called us to be in this sermon. The word for pure in the text means to simply be clean, to be free from adulterating matter, or to be free from moral guilt, free from sin. Now, there's only one way that can happen, and that is when Jesus changes our hearts when we trust him as Savior. Now, on the outside, we still have this body of sin and death. On the outside, we're still prone to sin, but inside our spirit wants to do what God wants us to do. It has been changed. It has been purified. Purity is that which can be polluted by sin and wrongdoing. So we have an enemy to our purity. The enemy to our purity is our own willfulness to choose to sin. No spot or sinful blemish is what purity means. Uh, Note that Jesus said the pure in heart. That's very clear in the text. This is a spiritual purity that can only come from the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, from the washing of his regeneration uh, work in our life. And for that, I wanted to read Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, where it says this, speaking of Jesus, he saved us, 
not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, there it is again, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, the fact that God saved us is an act of God's mercy. What did we deserve? We deserved eternity in hell. We deserved punishment forever. But God was merciful to us. And he said, instead of sending you to hell, if you'll believe that I paid for your sins on the cross, I will give you eternal life, and it'll be free. And we have taken advantage of that, and we have trusted in him. Nothing can wash away our sin except the blood of Jesus applied to our hearts through faith. The Spirit of God does that when we exercise faith in Christ. This is not something you can ever bypass Jesus and get. You cannot have a pure heart any other way except through Jesus. No man comes to the Father, Jesus said, except through him. Salvation is not by us being good. That's a lie. It isn't true. You can't be good enough to get into heaven. Being pure of heart is a declaration of Jesus on us as it is a spiritual reality of his work on us and in us. This is not achieved by something that we can do on our own. Salvation is not of us, it is of God. However, we know that in this flesh of ours, we still can and we do sin. But because of Jesus' work in us, we may sin, but we are still considered pure. The Bible says in Romans 8, Therefore there is, no, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you realize that you sit here this morning and God is not condemning you for anything if you belong to him? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't sin. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't get right with God when we do sin. But if you were to die right now, drop dead of a heart attack, well, number one, that would give us a chance to try our defibrillator. And number two... That would also uh, enter, enter you into heaven as a person who has no sin to be worried about before God. He's already taken care of it. All right, there's no purgatory. There's no afterlife cleansing. You make this decision, and you have no, nothing held against you by God. That's what the text says. But that doesn't give us the right or permission to sin or not to care about sin. Of course we care about it. We want to be pure of heart. And that is never how we treat the grace of God in us. We would not treat God's mercy by, uh, by choosing sin. Someday our purity will be an undefilable, permanent reality, but not yet. We still struggle in our flesh. While in this flesh we strive not to defile ourselves or others around us to the best of our ability and with God's help and God's power. Pornography defiles us. Foul language and cursing defiles us. Sexual sin defiles us. Reading romance novels defiles us. Watching Harry Potter opens us up to the occult and defiles us. Drinking parties where we get drunk defile us. Illegal gain defiles us. And on and on and on the list goes. We choose against those things. Defilement is hard to live down. In, in our lives. It's like a black spot on a white sheet. Everybody just sees the black spot. It's better to choose not to go down the path of defilement in the first place. Those who strive to maintain their purity are those who will see God because God has given them this purity of heart. Do you want to see God? Then Jesus must make your heart pure, and that's by faith. And then lastly, in verse 9, we learned that those who strive to make peace between people 
will be called the sons of God. Those who are striving to make peace between people will be called the sons, and I'm going to add there, and the daughters of God. The term means both. When we do the work of God, we are the sons or daughters of God. When we're attempting to bring peace where there is no peace, we are the sons and daughters of God. Sons, that word, speaks to a real family relationship. We could use daughters as well. We're adopted into the family of God. We used to belong to sin and Satan and his dark kingdom, but now we have been adopted out of that sin, out of that darkness, and now we are the children of light, the sons and daughters of God, adopted into his family with full privileges of inheritance, and we look forward to inheriting the the kingdom of God. We want to do the work of our Father. We want to reflect his character in what we do. Peacemaker refers to one who reconciles persons who have a disagreement. A peacemaker is like a mediator who goes in between two people that are having a problem and and works out a solution and works out peace. I don't know how many times I've uh, known of peace treaties in the world that don't last very long. And there's peace treaties that have been made that are already being violated. They were just made a few years ago between nations. Between people, we have the same problem. There can be people that are not at peace with others. And a peacemaker is somebody who does what they can. They're not God. They can't make it happen. But they do what they can to bring peace. There are people on an individual level who focus on interpersonal relationships for healing. Those who strive to do this on a personal level or those who have the chance to do it on a national level in Christ's name are those who will be called the sons, the daughters of God. Certainly, this is the designation we want of us. We want to be peacemakers, sons and daughters of God. Jesus is about peace with God, which in turn is the only way that we can have peace with each other in the world. If we don't have the the Lord living in our life, we're not going to be able to have true peace with others. Those who refuse to have peace with God will not achieve genuine peace, not with us or anyone else in the world. Peace, apart from God, is not lasting or significant peace. It's only temporary at best, but with God it can be more than that. It is not possible in this current world of sin and defilement and anger against God. It is not possible in this world to have peace at all times because we and others are sinners And sinners do the wrong thing, and they cause disruption. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 10, 34 says, Jesus speaking to a crowd, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. You get that? He's telling us, blessed are those who are peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. But we find Jesus in his own ministry having to say to people, I don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. He says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Then he defines what that is. In other words, uh, if you side with Jesus, you're not going to have peace with the world because the world will not want to have peace with you because they don't believe what we want and what we believe. Romans 12, 18 tells us if possible, which means it's not always possible. But if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So if it's up to you, if you can do something about it, then be at peace with all men. We're not pacifists. We don't believe that's taught in the Bible. 
because we don't see a prohibition against war or capital punishment. Not, not in the Bible, we don't. You shall not kill from Exodus 20, verse 13, that, ten, that one of the Ten Commandments, means premeditated murder. The Hebrew word ratzak means premeditated murder, which God does not consider to be the case in war or in justice with capital punishment. Somebody could say, don't punish me. I thought you were a peacemaker, but you did wrong, and the punishment is just. So we just need to ask ourselves, am I one who pursues peace? Is it, is it in my heart's inclination to do that whenever it's possible? Maybe one of the things I have to do is first begin uh, making peace by going to somebody and asking for their forgiveness. Would you forgive me for what I did? Because I know I harmed you with that and made you feel uh, in some way hurt or, or shameful or whatever the case might be. Am I pursuing peace? That begins with me. Uh, if I have something against someone, do I go get it right? If I need to forgive somebody, do I forgive them? Uh, if there's uh, a dispute about something somebody owns and uh, we just give in and say, go ahead and take it. Am I a peacemaker? Then I will be called a son or a daughter of God. And this is one of the reasons that I like focusing on marriage counseling because it is an effort to bring peace between two people that really need to be at peace with each other and merciful to each other and pure with each other. Well, what we learn is this. Basically, Jesus is telling us that if we claim his name, if I say I'm a Christian, if I say I'm a believer, he being our Lord, the one that we bow to, we cannot treat others with disdain or with disregard. Secondly, it is a privilege to be merciful, pure, and the peacemaker in this world for Jesus Christ. Number three, mercy does not mean that we condone sin. It can't be that. There's too many times in the Bible God tells us what to do about injustice. So mercy does not mean we can condone sin or the hatred of God's ways or just judgment. You know, it's come to my attention that people like to call us things like homophobic, that somehow we're afraid of homosexuality. We're not, we're not that. We're against the sin of homosexuality, but we love the people that are caught in that sin, and we'd like to see them set free. What I think is really going on is Godphobia, that people are afraid of the word of God. They don't like the word of God. They hate God, they fear God, and that's where the real fear is at. Mercy does not mean that we can condone sin or the hatred of God's ways or just judgment. Fourthly, peace is our goal. As much as it depends on you and me, peace is our goal. And we are to bring it about where we have that opportunity. And then purity is our choice every minute of each day. Purity is our choice every minute of each day. I share something with men who have a problem with lust, that once you get free from that and you've repented of it and there's any enemies that are attached to that, you get rid of them, uh, that I have a three-second rule. Uh, I give myself three seconds to recognize there's a problem there and do something about it and turn away. Because if I go four seconds or five or, or ten seconds, now I'm dwelling on it. Now I'm opening up my heart to the possibility, and that's going to cause me trouble. That's going to defile me. 
if a man is uh, prone to pornography, then he sees something he shouldn't be looking at, he needs to apply the three-second rule and quickly get away from it. Because without those kinds of efforts in our life, we can't be pure. I want you to know that mercy and purity and peacemaking are not something that just fall out of heaven and God gives you. What, what you have to do is you have to choose. I am going to be merciful. I am going to be a peacemaker. I am going to be pure. And then I have to work at those things. I have to make a decision. God is not going to make a decision for you or I to do the right thing. If he did that, then we wouldn't have to worry about most of the stuff in the Bible. We would just do it because God makes us do it. It doesn't work that way. God is looking for us as we're going down life's road to make a choice. Am I going to go Satan's way? And am I going to fall into a place of hatred and no peace and impurity? And am I going to not be merciful to anyone? And that leads to a ruinous road. Or am I going to choose to go God's pathway? And I believe the Bible teaches that once I make that choice, God will lend me the power of heaven to continue on the right path. But we must make a choice. These, friends, are all commands in this text. God wants us to be merciful. He wants us to be pure. He wants us to be peacemakers. But you and I have to make a choice. And that choice is going to be either disciplined by God, if it's a bad choice, or it's going to be upheld by God. And he will help us. And he will help us to walk this path. And that's the whole issue. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to gather around this table of the Lord. And we're going to celebrate a time of communion together. And we need to prepare our hearts for that. I thought since we're in the book of Matthew, we'll read the account in the book of Luke. If you want to follow along, Luke chapter 22. And I'm at verse 14. What I want you to understand is uh, we don't have the table that Jesus is going to use in his kingdom when we have this meal with him. This is just a wooden table somebody made that makes church furniture. They made the pulpit too. But it says across the front, uh, this do in remembrance of me. This do in remembrance of me. This is not where we get sin taken care of. We come here because Jesus took care of our sin. This is not a place of introspection and guilt. This is a place where we realize there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we sit in fellowship with the King of Kings. And he said, do this as a reminder of my truth, as a reminder of who we are, as a reminder that we are the children of God. Do this as, as you think of me, as you remember me. And someday... I'll have this meal with you in heaven. So with that in mind, when the hour had come, he, Jesus, reclined at table because that was the normal position as you ate was to lay on your side on, on a couch or a pillow. He said, I have earnestly desired uh, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's how we know that he's not physically going to be here until we're in his kingdom. It'll be a different table. It'll be a whole different group of people in terms of the numbers of Christians that are gathered. What an exciting day that will be. Think about it. How many times you've taken communion in your life? All those times looking forward to the time we get to do that with Jesus and his kingdom. And on that day it will be fulfilled, literally. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, 
He said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on till the kingdom comes. And when he had taken some bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. By the way, there's lots of different cups that are taken during the Seder meal, the Passover meal. So he ate the bread first, and then we commemorate it by taking the cup later. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is a new covenant in my blood. And then in Luke, Luke talks about the hand of the one who would betray him. Not everybody is welcome at the table. Only those who know Christ as their personal Savior. We're going to do what we've been doing uh, since the COVID changed things for us. I'm going to ask Steve if he would pray for the bread. Then Becky's going to pray so we can, we can commune with God and pray with God individually. And then when that uh, time is done, we'll partake of the bread together. Steve? prepare to take the bread together. <clears throat> this is not, nor does it turn into the body of Christ. This is a representation of our Lord's body that was given for us. So let's do this in remembrance of him. Brad, would you ask the blessing on the cup, please?
Let's take the juice together. The blood of the covenant of Jesus Christ is what ratified this covenant that we are showing that we are partakers of the new covenant. Let's do this in remembrance of him. I'll turn it over to our music people as we end our service.